You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, uh, so to jump into our text this morning, let me just start by going back a few years. In 2009, there were a group of about 20 people that were meeting in a little home in Midlothian. And it just, you know, it's hard for me to even describe how improbable, like when I just look out at you this morning, it is that I'm seeing all of you. Like if you'd have been there in those opening days, you'd have been like, man, I don't, I don't know if this is ever going to happen like this, you know? And uh, in 2009, we had a little crew of people that were started meeting in a home and uh, God just has opened up a million doors along the way. And here we are. But as a church family, August 23rd of 2009 is when we began. Uh, August 23rd was this past Wednesday, and as a church, we turned eight years old. So I want to start by saying happy birthday to us as a church. <laughs> happy birthday. You betcha. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you read the New Testament, you see that Paul writes letters to churches that he's helped plant. And one of the things he does consistently throughout those letters is affirm and commend the grace of God that is so evident in those places. He, he wants them to know that when he looks at their church, that, that particular church, that he sees the grace of God there. And he wants them to know that. He wants them to see the grace of God that is so present in their church. So he writes and he reminds them of those things. Even a church as messed up as the Corinthian church, he looks at them and says, do you see the grace of God that is alive and present right there in your midst? And so in light of it being our eighth birthday, I just want to take a moment to remind you of ways that the grace of God is just so evident in and among our church family. So I want to run down just two or three of these sorts of things. Uh, one, when I think of the last eight years, one way that has just been such an obvious expression of the Lord's grace is that Jesus has, has given this church family countless miracles over the last eight years. Uh, if you've been around here for long, you've probably heard me tell the story. Stonegate was a one-day-old idea, like literally. It was a Monday. Maybe, we, maybe that would work to plant a church there. On Tuesday, I went to the only family I knew in Midlothian. I pitched a half-baked idea to him. If you would have heard it, you would have laughed at it. And uh, the, the guy in that home, we went out on his back porch, and he said, you're not going to believe this. But a couple of months ago, a guy came up to me that I really respect and said, you need to get your life, your family, your finances, your everything ready for something new. And in a, in a one-day-old moment, he looked at me and said, it sure seems like this is it. Like, I don't know if Stonegate happens apart from a moment like that. And there's been many moments like that. Um, the fact that we're meeting in the conference center right now is a miracle from God. Uh, when we first started in the conference center, the, the basic tenor was, you might can have about nine months in here. And when it's all said and done, by God's grace, we're going to have about nine years in this particular location. Just a miracle that God has, has given us. God has provided for us in so many wonderful ways. When I think about, you know, about four years ago, we bought uh, 12 acres of, of land down in downtown Midlothian. And uh, then a, about a year and a half after that, we bought 23 acres that we're going to be moving to soon on Highway 287 and Walnut Grove. And if you know part of our story, just such a big part of the last year has been back last spring, we closed on that original 12 acres that we bought, $800,000, we closed on that piece of property for $2.74 million. That is just grace from the Lord. I mean, that is just God 
blessing us as a church family. When I think about All In, it's a two-year season of generosity that we're in the middle of. Uh, that started about 16 months ago. And if you remember, we, we were just praying that God, it seems like about $6 million would be a good goal for our church. Uh, God, would you give that to us? We have the moment where we celebrate our collective commitments, and it's over $11 million. That is grace from the Lord. That's a miracle from the Lord, just giving it to our church family. When I think about uh, diversity in our church family and the steps we've been able, to, been able to take there, when I think about orphan care in our church family and the steps we've been able to take care, we have four families just this year who have adopted in our church family. So I just, there's so many miracles just like that. Over the last eight years, when I look back, I just see a stack of miracles. I tell church planters often that uh, here's the only way you're going to make it is that the Lord gives you a series of a couple of hundred miracles. And Stonegate, God has given us that. He has done that in us. One of the ways we can see the grace of God is he has given us countless miracles. Another way we can see the grace of God is that God is using us for multiplication. Jesus is using this church family to multiply. Uh, over the last eight years, Stonegate's been able to help in the neighborhood of 20 churches be planted. Get up and going and get a start. Now, that help could come in uh, money. It could come in coaching. It could come in people or some combination thereof. But God has used this church family for roughly 20 church plants thus far in our history. And one of my favorite moments in our just multiplication endeavors was the first year of All In. Now, obviously, All In is a massively just crucial season in our church families. We're trying to get to a new base for mission out of this building and into a different one. And in that first year of All In, in the first nine months that All In began, we let go of about 120 of our people and a whole lot of money to help two church planters get up and going. So you should feel affirmed in that. You should look at that and know that is the grace of God at work in our church family. The Lord's using us for multiplication. Another way that I think you can see the grace of God just so evident in and around our church is that Jesus is using us to make disciples. He's using you for that. He's using this church family for that. Uh, when you think of disciple making, it comes in two parts. Uh, part one of disciple making is people need to meet Jesus. That's kind of the part one of this thing. But part two is people need to, to grow up and mature in Jesus. People need to become more like Jesus in every area of their life by the power of the Spirit. And God is using us for those sort of things. There's going to be a few pictures just kind of scroll uh, on the screen here of people who have met Jesus in our church family. And there's just countless stories across our church of people coming to this church, not knowing Jesus, and God just invading their life and heart and them knowing Jesus. Uh, you know, another thing that I just, when I think about people maturing in Jesus in our church, one of the interesting things that I've just heard over and over as people have recounted their experience at Stonegate has been that they have come to Stonegate and then somewhere along the way, it's as if they've had a second conversion. It's, at, you know, it's as if they were looking at the good news of Jesus, but the good news of Jesus had always been in like black and white. That's the way they were seeing it. But all of a sudden it begins to pop in vivid color where Jesus becomes more compelling and convincing and grand than he has ever been in their life. That story has just been replicated over and over and over in the life of our church. Jesus has really been active in and among us doing things that we could never be smart enough to do. Like we could never manufacture. Jesus has been doing those things in us. I and mean, I just want you to feel this morning a sense of commendation for that, that we can all give thanks to the work of Jesus in our church family. Now, here's where we're gonna take a little turn though. So in light of all of that, there is a but 
And here's what comes after that but. Just because we've seen the work of Jesus in our past doesn't mean that we're going to automatically see it in our future. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Just because we can look back over eight years and see the grace of God has been so present, so tangible in and among our church family, does not mean that when we look at the next eight years, that the hand of God and the blessing of God will automatically be upon us. It doesn't. That there have been countless churches used by Jesus for wonderful things who have gone on to die really sad deaths. Now, the question becomes, why is that? Why does a church go from vibrant and full of life, the hand of God totally upon them, the blessing of God totally upon them, the presence of God, the felt presence of God just there for that church? And then they, they look up in 15 or 20 years and they're dying. But why does that happen? How in the world does that happen? That's a question that a church like us, who has been the recipient of great blessing from the Lord, should probably wrestle with and figure out. Like, like how, how could we go from this sort of a past, seeing all of these wonderful things, to a dead, dead future? We need to figure out why do churches do that? How, how do churches do that? And this particular passage in Revelation 2, I think, will be helpful. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is addressing the church in Ephesus. Now, let me just give a couple of just background context clues for, for the church in Ephesus. We first see the church in Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19. This is when the church is planted. And if you know the story in, in Acts 18 and 19, Paul spends two years preaching there, laboring every day, preaching the good news of Jesus and producing very little fruit. Then one day a revival breaks out and people start meeting Jesus and the church is established in Acts 19. Five years later, Paul writes back to the church in Ephesus the letter of Ephesians, where he is encouraging them to remember the good news of Jesus. Then a few years after that, Paul writes letters uh, of 1 and 2 Timothy to Timothy, who's kind of his son in the faith, who is then pastoring Ephesus. And if you kind of keep going in the Bible, John, who wrote five letters of, of the New Testament, uh, John ends up spending a lot of time in Ephesus, pouring into the people of Ephesus. So you have great spiritual pedigree here, right? They have had a lot of great things happen in their church's life. A lot of great pastors, a lot of wonderful things happening in and through them. And then the last time we see them mentioned in the Bible is right here in, Ephe or in uh, Revelation chapter 2. It's their last appearance. And here is what we're going to find in this passage. We're going to find that Jesus commends some things about them, that Jesus condemns something about them, and that Jesus gives some commands to them. So we're going to find some, some commendation, some condemnation, and then some commands. So let's start with what does Jesus commend? What does Jesus commend? Look at verses 2 and 3. I know your works. Now just feel that for a moment. I know your works. Just hear the Lord saying that to us this morning. Behind everything else that you're doing, God sees. He sees the external things that we're doing. He sees the internal heart of our church. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Let me point out a few things that Jesus commends here. He commends that they are serious about doctrine. This is a church 
unlike many 21st century sort of American churches, that care about doctrine. They care about theology. They spend time in the Bible to get to know the Bible and what it says about God. They care deeply about these sort of things. So, so much so that when apostles or so-called apostles come in, these pastors or these traveling evangelists come in and they open up the, the word and they begin to preach it, that these people in Ephesus, that they can line that up with the scriptures and they can have a sense of, is this right or wrong? And, and when what they're saying is wrong, they have the wherewithal because they've studied the Bible. They, they know their doctrine, they know their theology to be able to look at what's wrong and actually call it wrong. And Jesus is saying, I love that. That's a commendable thing. You are serious about doctrine. You care about that. Jesus loves that in this church. He's, they're serious about doctrine. Jesus affirms that and commends that. He also goes on and he affirms that they are, they're serious about holiness. He commends them for their seriousness about holiness. In, in verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So their right doctrine was, was moving into and being translated into right living. They could not bear with evil. They, they were laboring for the sake of Jesus. The, the people in Ephesus, this church, they were toiling for Jesus. They really wanted their life to count for Jesus. With their few short years, they really did want to make a difference for Jesus, a genuine difference in the, in the world around them. They, they wanted that. Jesus is commending them for that. In verse 6, you see that he says, you, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, now most commentators would agree that here was kind of the, the work that they're hating here. It's the, the Nicolaitans were people who were saying, yes, you can take the gospel of Jesus Christ, take Jesus, but along with Jesus, you can still have your pagan worship. It's okay to still worship these, these pagan gods as well. That, that's all right too. And the church in Ephesus is looking at that and they're saying, no, God really does care about our holiness. He wants us to grow up and mature. He wants us to become like Jesus in every area of our life through the power of the Spirit. They're looking at people and saying, it's not Jesus and your pet sins. Jesus actually wants you to put to death your pet sins. So, so they're standing for that. They care about holiness. That the church in Ephesus was a church that was a safe place for sinners, but not a safe place for sin. I want to be at a church like that. Don't you want to be at a church like that? That, that wants to see growth in Jesus, wants to labor to that end. And Jesus looks at them and commends that. They're serious about doctrine. They're serious about holiness. And thirdly, he's looking at them and he says, I I'm commending you because you've suffered well for my sake. You have suffered well for, for my sake. In verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. To be a Christian in Ephesus is unlike being a Christian in America. To be a Christian in Ephesus, you enjoyed no place of privilege. To, to be a Christian in Ephesus, you were looked down upon. Many Christians in Ephesus lost their lives because they were Christians. You know, if you go back to Acts chapter 19, when the church in Ephesus was planted, you'll find that a revival breaks out, people are converted, and a church is, is planted. And then as soon as that happens, immediately following that, opposition arises to that church, to, to people who are following Jesus. A riot breaks out with the intent of running all of these followers of Jesus out of town. And Jesus looks at this church and says, you're enduring that. 
You are patiently enduring. You're not giving up. You're not, you're not growing weary. You're hanging in there. You're suffering well for my sake. And he commends them for that. He says, you, you, you need to be affirmed in that. You need to know that is evidence of my grace in your life. So he commends those things. Then the question becomes, what does Jesus condemn? And verse 4 is the answer to that. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, maybe this is the first time you've ever seen this passage. If it's not the first time you've ever read it, picture the first time you read this passage. When, when, when I first read this passage, I am not expecting this passage to play out that way. He's just affirmed they are serious about doctrine. He's just affirmed they are serious about their holiness, that they are suffering well for my sake. The last thing I'm expecting is to find verse four. The last thing I'm expecting is for Jesus to say, but there's a problem. And the problem is you have lost your first love. That is not what I'm expecting to hear him say. You have lost your love. Now, what do we learn in this text? Alexander Strzok, who, who wrote a book on this passage called Love or Die, he says this about it. Here's what we learn from Revelation 2.4. Here's what we learn and, and we must never forget. It's that an individual or a Christian can teach sound doctrine, be faithful to the gospel, be morally upright, and work hard, laboring, trying to make a difference for Jesus, yet be lacking love and therefore be displeasing to Christ. Love can grow cold while outward religious performance still appears to be acceptable or even praiseworthy. Man, what a sobering thought, huh? And that really leads to the question that I want to set before you this morning and allow you to wrestle through this morning. And the question goes like this. Have you lost your love? Have you lost your love? Now, let me, let me put one caveat in here. It doesn't say love of what in this passage. It doesn't say, is it a love for Jesus? Or is it a, is it a brotherly love for one another? It doesn't say. And I think it doesn't say because it's probably a both and. So I think it's, you've lost them both, probably. But, but I want to, the way I'm going to apply this and where I'm going this morning, I'm going to apply it most directly to your love of Jesus. So when I'm saying, have you lost your love? I'm asking you, has your heart grown cold for Jesus? Have you lost your love of Jesus? Do you have a deep hunger for Jesus? Or has that deep hunger faded in your heart? Now, love is an interesting thing. Most people think that love is a static issue in our life, like it just remains like this throughout our life, but that's not what love does, is it? Love is dynamic. It has a way of you know, waxing and going up and then waning and going down. Think about marriage. I think it's a great illustration of this. If you've been married for any length of time, you know what it's hard to convince every couple in premarital counseling, that, that your love is going to have a tendency to do this th throughout your life together right? There's going to be days where it's deep and rich and vibrant, and there's going to be other days where it feels like it's cold and numb, where it, where it doesn't work the way you want it to work, right? And that's showing us something about the nature of love. You know, some of, some of my worst 
moments in pastoral ministry, just the, the moments that have grieved me more than anything else, is sitting across the table from a couple who once had such tender and deep affection and love for one another, and then watching them in this room just absolutely be disgusted with one another. It's hard to even sit in the same room with that person that they used to love so dearly. That's showing us something about the nature of love. Maybe you could think of it this way. Love of Jesus today is no guarantee against a cold heart tomorrow. Just think on that for a moment. Love of Jesus today is no guarantee against a cold heart for Jesus tomorrow. Maybe you could think of it this way. Losing a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus is a real danger in your life. It's a real danger in your life. It's a real danger in my life. Losing a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus, it's a real danger. For you, right now, that is a real danger. And here's the reason that it's a real danger. It's because there is a real war being waged right now for your affection. I mean, this is one of the primary ways that spiritual warfare works in all of our life. It works down on the level of affection. What are you loving right now? You're going to wake up today and you're going to be in a war for that question. Like, what do you love supremely in your life? What is driving every other love? There is a war right now going on for your affection, and there are plenty of contenders for your affection. This is the reason that in Jude, Jude counsels us, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep keep yourself there, because it's going to be hard. There's a war going on. There's all these competitors trying to lobby for your love. So, So keep yourself in the love of God. Here recently, I saw an ad for a wedding dress. And the ad for the wedding dress had a bride-to-be in the picture, and she's looking at this beautiful wedding dress that was obviously probably going to be her wedding dress here soon. And then there was a caption right over the picture that that read this, love him, but love your dress more. Now, I think that thought right there is what tomorrow you're going to wake up contending against. Hey, love Jesus. It's Monday morning, 8 o'clock. Love Jesus. Hey, but love money a little bit more than that. Love Jesus, but make sure you, you, love, you love your bank account a little more than Jesus. Love Jesus, but make sure you love your money and possessions. Love Jesus, but make sure you, you love your kids. Right? This is how the lie goes. You can have Jesus all day long, but just make sure you love these things more. Do y'all remember the parable of the soils where Jesus shows us this third soil? And here's what he shows us in that third soil. He says that there are things called the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. And that these, this little you know, trifecta, that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they are like thorns and weeds that begin to grow up in our heart. And here's what they have a tendency to do. Choke out our love for Jesus. So Jude says, you have to keep yourself in the love of God. That that you've got these seeds that are native to your heart that are gonna automatically, it's Monday, they're gonna start growing up in your heart with one aim. It's choking out a love of Jesus. I love what one pastor says. He says, do you have a hunger for God? 
Just ask yourself that question. Do you have a hunger for God? Do you have a hunger for God? If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, if we don't feel strong desires for Jesus, it's not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied in Jesus. It's because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world cares for this world, deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things. Our soul is so stuffed, he said, with small things that there's no room for the great. There is nothing more important in your life than having a heart that is bursting with the love for Jesus. Nothing more important in your life than in my life. When is the last time you have been able to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, God, so my soul pants after you. When's the last time you've been able to say with the psalmist, Psalm 63, 1, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. When's the last time your heart has been so tenderized by the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've been brought to tears over it? When's the last time? Have you lost your love? Keeping our hearts in love with God requires a cultivation. Go back to the gardening analogy with me for a second. There, there, there's water and fertilizer that needs to be put into our hearts. And then there's weeds and there's thorns that have to be plucked from our heart. If we don't cultivate our heart, if we don't tend to our heart, a coldness is going to be our native sort of default reaction to God. So it requires a cultivation. And I, I think part of, of cultivating our heart well means that we have to learn the right questions to ask. And here's one of the things that worries me sometimes about us that are trying to follow Jesus. I think a lot of times we get stuck on the question of, is this thing sinful or not sinful? Now, there is a place for that question. The Bible obviously says if it's sinful, it is going to hurt your affections for the Lord, right? So, so there is a place for that question. But I just want to encourage you to move beyond that question. Ask that one and another one. And we have to get to where we're asking this question about our life repeatedly. Does this thing that I'm looking at right now, whatever that thing is, does this thing feed my desire for Jesus or diminish my desires for Jesus? Does this grow my affection for Jesus or stunt my affections for Jesus? I mean, just think about the whole range of morally neutral things you're going to be confronted with tomorrow. And this is the question we have to continually ask. If I do this, are my affections for Jesus going to grow when I'm finished or are they going to be diminished when I'm finished? I'll just give you some examples of this. I think most people wind down to an hour of TV at night. Now, is that a sinful thing? Depending on what you watch, probably not. It's probably not a sinful thing in and of itself. But that's really the wrong question to ask about winding down with an hour of TV. The better question is, does... Does doing that, making that your nightly routine, does that foster and grow and feed a desire for Jesus? Or does it have a way of subtly diminishing your desire for Jesus? 
Take technology as another example. I don't know if your phone is like this, but my phone has like an audible voice that I can hear like 24-7 that is always saying, please come and check me one more time. I know you just checked me 12 seconds ago, but one more time. You might be missing out on something somewhere. I mean, there's like a voice in that thing that's constantly saying that. Um, I'll never forget this one moment. Uh, Kevin Jones and I, we were at this, uh, this presentation. I wasn't overly interested in it. So I just have my phone and I'm mindlessly just, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm looking at something. I don't know even what I'm looking at. And then he sends this text message right in the middle of my mindless sort of phone moment. It's from one of our favorite pastors. It says this. It's just a quote from this guy. One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. I'm like, thank you, Kevin Jones. Appreciate that, bud. But how true is that? I mean, just ask yourself the question. Does checking Facebook 42 times today, is it going to increase my desire for Jesus or is it going to diminish my desire for Jesus? Now just apply that across the range of morally neutral things happening in our life. Is it going to increase and feed our desires or diminish those desires? So we've got to be constantly plucking those weeds and thorns that are diminishing our desires, constantly fertilizing and watering our heart with those things that are feeding them. This is part of what it looks like to keep our, our hearts in the love of God. So that's what Jesus condemns. They have lost their first love. Ask yourself the question, have you lost your love? Is there a deep burning desire in you for Jesus? And then lastly, we see that Jesus offers three commands. Three commands. What are, the, what are these commands? What Jesus commands. There's three imperatives in verse five. There's three things that he tells us. In light of a coldness. So if you're here today and your heart's grown cold in some areas, you've lost your love in some ways. He's saying here are three things that we can do to, to begin to plow up that ground in our souls. Three imperatives. Verse five, first word, remember, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, remember. Do you remember the day that the Lord saved you? You remember that moment? That when you just look back in your life, can you remember those moments, those seasons in your life where your heart was just about to bust because you were loving Jesus so much? Laura and I were just thinking about that question last night, and it made me think back to when I was 21 years old. And uh, I was, you know, a, a junior in college. I'm at a college sort of retreat conference. And I just remember this moment of holding up my life to Jesus and just saying to Jesus, man, I am all yours. Whatever you want, whenever you want it, God, I am all yours. And, and part of what Jesus is saying here is, Remember that. Remember those peaks in your love for Jesus and then look at your heart now. Where is your heart now? But, and you need to hear this really clearly, but we don't just need to remember the peaks in our love for Jesus. We also need to remember the steady, unflinching, and bottomless love of Jesus for us. 
You, you know, it's interesting. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing a letter to this particular church. And he says in that letter, or in the first three chapters, only gives one command in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. W- one command. Do you remember what that command is? The only command in the first three chapters. It's to remember. And he's not saying, remember your love for Jesus. He's saying, remember Jesus' dying love for you. Remember the good news of Jesus. Before you do anything else, he's saying, remember the dying love of God for you. I, I love how John Stott says this. He says, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. Yes to that. Let me read that again. The cross, the dying love for Jesus. The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. Maybe you can think of it this way. The number one reason I fail to love God in the way that God deserves is because I fail to understand the depths by which God loves me. I mean, this is what the Bible teaches over and over. This is 1 John 4, 19. We love, but why do we love? It's because he first loved us. That's why we love. And by remembering how he loves us, we are kindling in our heart a deeper love of him. I was just, in some ways, just freshly overwhelmed by God last night, just the ways he has loved me. You know, it's late last night. I'm just looking around my house And I looked at my beautiful wife, been married for 15 years this last June. Just such an expression of the love of God for me. I'm looking at a house full of kids and just freshly overwhelmed again at just what an expression of grace and mercy of love they are from God to me. Thinking about our church last night and just what a privilege it is and what a grace from God it is to be one of the pastors at this church thinking about the dear friends that God has put in my life, just all the different ways that God has loved me. And last night as I was thinking about that, I was just, I was freshly amazed at just the fact that I'm a Christian, that there's something in me that loves God. I mean, I'm just amazed at that. How in the world can that be? And in the middle of going to bed last night, I passed my son that was sleeping on the couch last night. And I just stopped and looked at Caleb, just thinking about how much I love that little guy. And then just, again, just freshly amazed that God would allow his beloved son to literally sink into hell on the cross to make me a son. And this is what Jesus wants us to remember. He wants us to remember, yes, the peaks of our love, but more importantly, Jesus' undying love for us. Some of y'all remember Keith Green. He was a, uh, a Christian artist back in kind of the 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And one particular song of, him, of his, I'm just going to read the lyrics to you. Here's what it says. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard and my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be, alive to you, Jesus, and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? And some of you, I think that's probably where we are today with the Lord. Just recognizing our eyes are dry and our heart's cold. And God, what can be done for a heart like ours? Listen to what he says. He just, he's praying this to God. God, what can, be, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. 
The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. Now, I just wonder how many of our hearts need to be washed again with the wine of Jesus' blood for us to remember the dying love of Jesus. So he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Here's the second word, repent. Remember and then repent. If your heart is cold to Jesus today, it's numb to Jesus today, this is an invitation from the Lord to bring that numbness to him, to bring that coldness, to bring those callousness to him. That this is what the Lord is saying here. He's wanting us to bring those to him, not run from him with those things, but to bring that coldness to him, believing that, that he alone can melt the frozen tundra of our heart into a fresh love and responsiveness to him. That God really can't do that for you today. I love how one pastor just formed a prayer out of this particular verse. And here was his prayer. Maybe we need to pray this today. Maybe you need to pray this today. Holy Spirit, breathe upon the embers of my heart and rekindle the love I first had for Jesus when the gospel of grace first applied to my heart, when nothing else mattered. Come, Holy Spirit, come in fire and power. Preach the gospel to my heart today, right now, as though it was the very first time. I just wonder if you need to pray that today. God, God, blow upon the embers of my heart. God, restore this deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus in me. God, do that, please. He says, remember, repent. And then he says, redo. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I just wonder in your life where fresh commitments to Jesus need to be made. Fresh commitments to, to pull these weeds and these thorns out of your life that are diminishing your love of Jesus. Fresh commitments to do these things over here that are feeding that deep and vibrant and rich love of Jesus. I mean, just ask yourself now, where, where do those fresh commitments need to be made in my heart? And I want to finish by showing you what's at stake here. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, here's the warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you go back to verse 1 we see that that word lampstand equals the church in Ephesus. So Jesus is saying here, if you continue to, to love me, but love all these things more, if you continue in your coldness and apathy, if you continue that way, it's going to force me into a moment of discipline that, that I can just, I can only picture how it would grieve the heart of God. But he's saying, you're going to force me into a moment of discipline where I actually have to work against you. Because I'm for you, I have, to, I have to work against you. I'm going to have to come in, I'm going to have to take my hand off of your church. I'm going to have to take my blessing off of your church. My felt presence, it's going to be gone. And your church is going to die. 
And, and do you know what's so sad? That if you go to Ephesus today, rather than a thriving church, do you know what you're going to find? A gospel-barren wasteland. You're going to see that God actually had to do that to this church. What a travesty. Finish with these words from one commentator. He said, if God spared not a city so once blessed, take heed lest he spare not you. The church of God must stand and will stand till time shall be no more. But the lampstand, this particular church in Ephesus, Stonegate Church, that local church, this local church, but the lampstand is a movable part of the furniture in the house of God. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment here to just ask the Holy Spirit to press into you the things that would be most helpful. To remove the things that wouldn't be helpful. Remember, remember back to those peaks of love, heart bursting for Jesus. Have you lost that love? Remember the dying love of Jesus. It's in looking at that dying love meditating upon that dying love that our hearts in a new and fresh way come to life in Jesus. Remember, repent. Just wonder if you need to bring your coldness to Jesus today. You need to offer that up to him today believing that the frozen tundra of your heart can be melted. New, fresh love produced. I wonder how many of us need to pray, Holy Spirit, breathe upon the embers of my heart and rekindle the love I had at first. Redo. What fresh commitments need to be made today? fresh commitments to cultivate a heart that feels our need of Jesus, loves Jesus. Oh God, would you help us? God, would you put in us a deep desire to love you above all else? Not love you and something else more, but love you above all else. And God, would you do in your grace whatever it takes in every one of our hearts to get us there, to produce that sort of love in us? Whatever it takes. God, we as your people this morning are just asking, whatever it takes, God, put in us that sort of deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus. God, for those who 
are hearing this today, knowing their hearts are cold, yet they still don't care? God, would you please do whatever it takes in this moment to break that? God, whatever it takes in this moment to, to punch through that. God, would you help us all see that, that it's in a deep, rich, vibrant love of you that our joy is then made complete and full. That is where the fullness of life actually happens. God, for the sake of our church family, the next eight years, the next 80 years, God, would you, would you put in us a burning desire and hunger for Jesus? Oh God, would you do? in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.